Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Where can you get the best medical information anytime and anywhere? Right here on The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Of course, my disclaimer, please note that this podcast is for medical educational purposes only, and it is not intended for personal medical advice. For that, please consult with your trusted healthcare professional. Today's podcast is really exciting. It's on a revolutionary breakthrough in science and medicine called CRISPR. That's C-R-I-S-P-R. Now, if any of you have been following me, you know, I've done a previous podcast on the subject, but it was really about how a, a bold high school teacher was actually teaching her students the practical ways of doing CRISPR experiments, which I thought was really cool. But I really want to get back into today with my expert and guest, what is CRISPR? And then we're going to be discussing it that at length. You know, I know a lot of people are worried at times that scientists are altering our genes or they're trying to play God. Now, and another issue we're going to get into is that sometimes also these treatments are just unaffordable. I mean, and we're going to get into that, you know, what's currently available, even though they can sometimes cure a disease, but they're millions of dollars, just one dose of medicine. My guest today, Dr. Eric Metch, is a PhD scientist and the chief medical officer at the Christiana Care Gene Editing Institute in Delaware, I believe. I found out about Dr. Kmetch, and this was interesting, after he wrote a letter to the editor of the New York Times in response to an article written by Dr. Fyodor Ernov, who's a researcher at University of California, Berkeley, who wrote a very provocative op-ed piece in the New York Times titled, We Can Cure Diseases by Editing a Person's DNA. Why aren't we? So with all of that, I'd like to introduce Dr. Eric Kmetch to the podcast. Thanks, Dean. It's great, great to be here. It's actually an honor. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Really enjoyed your uh, your previous ones. I learned actually a lot about running and exercise. Okay. Recently, one of that, it was good. I was doing a lot of things wrong, so you helped me. Oh, uh, thank you. No, it's nice. Outline. You know, it's it's funny you mentioned that because I still I'm always like so flattered. Like I have a lot of even patients that I do consults with, and then you know they don't say it right away, but somewhere in the middle of the the um the visit they say oh but you said this on the podcast so da, da, da. And <laughs> right. i was like oh some people are listening so that's that's our goal Definitely. and that's really the goal of today because you know what happens dr Mitch, as you know there's always a lot of hype about things and then right. patients don't see for years any benefit and they there's like all this disappointment and you know the news is very good at that they have those 30 second two minute you know blurbs oh new breakthrough in this and that and then you and then i know because as a doctor i don't want to miss anything i watch it and i'm like uh Another dud, you know. So I'm going to ask, well, actually, I want to ask you this. I love to get into people's background. And this kind of interested me about you, too. You know, CRISPR technology wasn't around, I'm sure, when you were getting your doctorate. Uh, so what area did you study in, and how did you end up transitioning into this area? Well, I actually started uh, trying to understand the molecular biology of how chromosomes exchange information. It's a naturally occurring process we call recombination. Right. And in fact, it's kind of what advances evolution that, you know, new genes are made, advantageous genes are made through that. In my PhD uh, work at University of Florida Medical School, I, um, I worked on that. And in those days, and I probably refrained from uh, saying how long ago that was, it was after the Civil War. So I think that's <laughs> fair to say. But, okay. Um, 
we, we had to work in yeast and in fungus because people thought mammalian cells were very complicated. Um, and so the field of recombination and the enzymology, I, I just continued to follow that through the years, through postdoctoral fellowship and all of my uh, faculty appointments at U University of California, Davis, then Thomas Jefferson University and uh, in Philadelphia and then University of Delaware, really to follow up on that. And, um, and so we were, we were doing gene editing in a very primitive way uh, prior to the uh, advent of CRISPR. And, and anecdotally, we call that the BC era before CRISPR. And uh, mm -hmm. in some ways, when I look back at those days, the things we had to do to figure one small thing out are really dwarfed by the power of, of this CRISPR. And I think you, uh, you know, talked exactly about what this is. This is a revolution and uh, we are challenged to use it properly. Yeah. Okay. So now, uh, now comes some, you know, sometimes the first question <laughs> can be the toughest question. Can you try to explain to our listeners and for me, the most simplistic and visual way to describe what is CRISPR technology and, and why did they give a Nobel Prize to uh, I'm blanking on her name for a second. Yeah, Jennifer Dudna, Dudna if I'm saying that right. Yep. And uh, um, Emmanuel Charpentier, Emmanuel Charpentier yeah. for this discovery. And quite, yes. quite quickly, yeah. I mean, it's not like they had to wait 30 years to get the <laughs> Nobel Prize, right? No, it's, we, we, were, we were delighted. I, I know Emmanuel well. I know Jennifer, but um, oh, really? <laughs> not as well. And uh, we were rooting uh, in the, in the uh, late fall, but uh, we were a little surprised that it did come through. But it, it does reflect on how powerful this is because um, almost for decades, people have been trying to figure out how to, uh, you know, productively and safely manipulate human genes with, with the desire to cure mutations. Uh, gene, you know, diseases like sickle cell disease, cystic fibrosis, Craig Larnajar, you, you as a yes, physician, you yeah. know many more yeah. than I do, are usually caused by a single mutation. And, and so, we didn't have the tools to do it correctly. It was possible and, and our laboratory introduced a couple of those, but when CRISPR came along, it, it kind of changed the way we do business. So we think about gene editing as a genetic spell checker. So mm, if like every that. gene is a word mm -hmm. and every letter in that word is a base, mm -hmm. then if the word is misspelled, um, and if Dean, you've received emails from me, you know that I don't know how to use word you know, spell check, but uh, in a gene, there is no spell check. It, the, the cell doesn't know it's wrong. It just continues to proliferate that mutation. Mm -hmm. So what gene editors like uh, I do are to try to find a tool that we can go in and tell the cell this word is misspelled or this gene has an inappropriate base. And we want to change that back to the normal base. And as I mentioned for years, this was possible and, and we could do it, but at such a low frequency, it wouldn't make any difference. And, and that's why we had to work in these primitive organisms that replicate every 20 minutes or every hour, as opposed to you know nine months for a human. So when CRISPR came along, it enabled us to do that very efficiently. And ironically, CRISPR uh, is, a, is actually part of a complex known as CRISPR-Cas. So CRISPR, puts a molecular scissors, the Cas protein, to a site on the DNA. It sort of scans along the chromosome. And when it hits its target site, which we engineer into the CRISPR, we tell it where to bind. We, we can synthesize it. The scissors make a cut. And then the cell's own repair system, amazingly, does the rest of the work. So all CRISPR and Cas, or CRISPR is, 
is a pair of molecular scissors that can find a unique site, a mutation, let's say in the beta globin gene of, of the sickle patient and engineer that specific exchange. So mm -hmm. um, the beauty of CRISPR-Cas is that it is a naturally occurring phenomenon. That's what I, I was waiting for you to right. say, because That's, I think that is so important. I'm sorry to interrupt you now because you know, I like to make this point, and I was going to ask, there was the next question I was going to ask you, but, you know, people are familiar with antibiotics. And right. what really people forget, because the wording, the, the term, whoever invented that was brilliant, but yes, yet somehow misleading. You know, antibiotics are obviously a natural phenomenon where mold eat bacteria, right? So, I mean, right. that's how, what was it, uh, Fleming's discovered that originally. He would, he had these plates growing staphylococcus, I think aureus, you know, these yeah. golden, you know, colored staph. He left a couple of plates out over the weekend, <laughs> exactly. right? Instead of putting them in the refrigerator. I know, I'm, I'm a student of immunology, <laughs> right? It's always an accident. And he comes right. back and he sees that like, it's not growing. It got that eaten away exactly. by, he realized after culture, it was mold. So when people are taking antibiotics, it's some sort of derivation of mold. That's why I have people that have allergies to antibiotics. So I want to just make that clear. You know, so CRISPR, just for the listeners, it's not clearly antibiotics. It's not a vaccine. And it's also really not messenger RNA technology. Because, you know, we know there's been a lot of blowback against mRNA technology. Like, what right. is this? They're putting something into me that's, you know, not, you know, not part of my, you know, system. And I think what you're saying, and I just want to make it really clear for the listeners, which is fascinating because I've delved into this. I mean, CRISPR originally is bacteria, which we all have. It was their defense against viruses. Correct? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So this, yeah. I want people to understand this. This is no. like your bacteria's own immune system against viruses. And we just sort of serendipitously realized, oh, my God, this thing is like, as you described, a molecular scissors. It's a, you know, it's a autocorrect, you know, and why not use it? to cure diseases, right? That is exactly right, Dean. Um, we call it adaptive immunity. And, and, uh, and so like us, when we get an infection or influenza or flu or COVID, uh, our body has antibodies which react to it, clearly some, some T cells as well, but primarily antibodies. Mm -hmm. And so bacterial cells also have to fight off uh, virus, you know, invasions of virus infections, and they do so using a CRISPR system. And in fact, I think at last count, there's somewhere between 15 and 20 CRISPR systems around. So wow. we're only, this is only the tip of the iceberg. And, uh, you, it, and so this is the naturally occurring thing that has developed over the eons to fight, be effective about fighting off infection. And the brilliance of Doudna and uh, Chapontier and their colleagues, and of course, as you know, it's a whole team of laboratory scientists sure. to do this, postdocs, graduate students, yeah, yeah. students. Oh, yeah. They decided that they, we, we call this the democratization of gene editing or CRISPR because they were able to restructure the molecule to do exactly what it does in, in, uh, in bacterial cells and process it into humans. And that's really what they won the prize for oh, okay. CRISPR had been known and had been discovered in milk fermenting bacteria of all right, things. Right. Uh, someone were reading those posters in Amsterdam in the dark of night <laughs> and CRISPR was in there. Right. And, uh, and, and they decided to, to take it and see if it worked in humans. And of course that sounds so simple. It wasn't, it was very mm -hmm. complex, but that's what happened. So we are now in a new age of genetic surgery 
because we have a tool that nature has given us. And if we handle it properly, then hopefully we'll be able to make a difference in cancer and in inherited disease. Yeah, we're going to get into that. You know, one of the things I just want to emphasize, you know, I, again, my training and my fellowship was in immunology and infectious disease and allergy. And, you know, what's really crazy is that I don't remember anybody ever talking about this or teaching, you know, how even viruses and bacteria interact. I mean, I remember, I remember in honestly, like introductory biology in at undergraduate school, you know, there was like a, maybe a, a tiny little section on, and you're familiar with this, like bacteriophages, which are, right. <laughs> you know, you know, and that was it. That was, you know, let's say, because, yeah. you know, when you really think about it and, you know, obviously more and more of my listeners and patients are interested in the microbiome, which is the, uh, obviously the, the good and bad bacteria that line all of our mucosal membranes and tissue. And yet we forget that there's probably also what they call a virome, you know, where there's virium, viruses. Right. So how are all of these guys interacting? And uh, so this is interesting. Let me ask you this now too, because this is the big, big thing, you know, and again, I clipped this out of the newspapers recently today <laughs> too. Yeah, I'm, uh, I do my homework. But, you know, gene therapies, which have been around for a while, there's been some devastating failures, unfortunately. Yeah. There's been some amazing successes. And I want to differentiate that a little bit from CRISPR, but also the gene therapies, which are some of them FDA approved, they're, what's the right word? They're just devastatingly expensive. I mean, you know, I think I, just, I have here, I was, it was in the article I was reading in the Times, I think the other day, something called Zolgensma which, you know, sounds like a crazy uh, right. name, is used for something called spinal muscular atrophy, yeah, which at this time is believed to be the most expensive uh, medication in the world, but yet it can supposedly amazingly cure this spinal muscular atrophy. And, you know, so governments have to decide, you know, are they going to fund this? Because obviously no insurance company wants to touch this with a 10-foot pole. So why is it that the gene therapies, is it, you know, is it appropriate that they're so expensive? And then we'll get to, do you think CRISPR therapies will be in that same crazy range? Because I've seen some reports saying, no, this is not going to be nearly as expensive. Well, and I think that was part of the... Uh you know, Fedora's uh, uh, email uh, yes, uh, right. article mm-hmm. that I really liked and, and, yeah. and why it prompted me to, to agree with him. And, and he's friends, so I uh, haven't seen mm-hmm. him in years, but it was I'm glad he wrote it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the original gene therapy concept is, more, is not to edit the gene, but to actually augment it. Mm-hmm. So if you have a poorly performing hemoglobin, if you could put into the cells, your blood cells, your blood stem cells, uh, progenitor cells, a gene that is producing good hemoglobin, mm-hmm. you would presumably get better. And that has not worked particularly well. As you said, there have been spectacular, and this goes back to some of your earlier you know, comments that you read something, oh my God, we've cured hemophilia, right? Or we've cured sickle cell disease. And three months later, the patient dies or because the body, for some strange reason, has this unique ability to recognize how much good stuff is in there and it regulates the level of the gene that's being expressed. I I don't think we've touched on how the body's mnemonic behavior, its ability to remember how things go. It's an unknown Mm. capacity. It almost gives us our humanity, frankly, which which makes me very proud (laughs) that we're different than than the new bots coming up a little bit. But in essence, the early days of gene uh, gene therapy were gene augmentation, and that required a virus. 
right. to be delivered. And those viruses had to be grown in huge tanks the size of probably your office uh, to make enough, and the cost was astronomical. Oh, is that what so it was? So, after- so it was the virus growing the virus, and then the, the gene would be inserted into the virus, exactly. and the virus would be like the carrier, the vector, getting in, trying to get in as much to produce the, the, the protein or whatever that needed to have a That's normal exactly functioning it. system. Yeah. yeah, so the manufacturing was ungodly expensive. And so as we've moved in our own work into a different direction, we've kept that in mind because we are, um, you know, at, at Christiana Care in particular, uh, you know, one of the reasons I joined this organization to build this was because we are committed to reducing health disparities. And one of the things you so correctly mentioned was the exorbitant cost of these kind of revolutionary innovative technologies. So we're, you know, I, I do think CRISPR, and we'll, we'll talk perhaps about it later, I, yeah. I think this can be done in a lot cheaper range, but that's why. It takes so much to effort in growing of human cells to produce these viral carriers and the manufacturing of bio, you know, biomanufacturing is so expensive. And, and this is not something that can be done within a couple of weeks. This is, you know, nine months to make enough to treat three patients. It, it, it really has added to the cost. And on top of that, oh, it sometimes works and most of the time it doesn't work. So, mm, so these are a lot of the drawbacks and just out of, to clarify too, is it when you when they come up with this gene therapy, you know, the, the other ones you're talking about, it, it it's not patient specific, or is it? No, it's not. It's disease specific. Disease specific. So it could be used for any any patient that has that disease. Right. You know. Okay. Because you would think that would make it, it maybe less a little bit less expensive, but apparently not, you know. Uh in some ways the the problem with vi any t- I mean, look, um, and, and there's probably been 35 years of work on this, and I can't even count the number of NIH grants and money to try to reduce the negative effect of having a virus delivering your, you know, the, the correct gene. You know, we, um, almost common sense, and this is probably why people without PhDs ask the right question. They say, you know, it is a virus that is going to elicit an immune response. And so that's what's happened in many cases, despite all the claims that this is not an immunogenic virus, adeno-associated virus, suddenly things pop up where every individual patient given the same universal treatment has a different antibody or immune. And of course that falls into your, you know, one of your expert, expert baskets there. So, um, so that, that's, that's the real challenge. Okay. So it seems that for these single genetic mutations, CRISPR is the way to go. We so, think so, yeah. So take us through why we don't have these problems. You know, again, uh, I, also if you could explain a little bit too, it's interesting, I mean, it's, it's interesting who's gonna be administering this. They're gonna be special like um, genetic hematology uh, centers or is it gonna be divided like as medicine usually does between you know, people in depending where the field is, where this issue is, you know, you know, for example, like sickle cell anemia might be with hematologists and angioedema might be in my area of allergy immunology. But maybe is it through an IV infusion? Does how does this how does this CRISPR, this gene, this gene editing like you're talking about, get into a, a, either a large or all of the cells to correct the problem? So let me uh, I can probably best answer that by our own our own experience because yeah. we've been through this for a lot. So oh, wow. okay. um, 
we decided to use what's known as a non-viral vector. So this is a synthetic molecule called a lipo nanoparticle, an LNP. Mm-hmm. It is actually the carrier that the COVID vaccine is used for. Right. So we've had this incredible clinical trial. It's been very successful. So we've partnered with a company that is making that for that exact reason. And that allows us to not worry so much. Now, this is not to indicate that there can't be other problems, but so far we don't think we don't, we're not seeing in some of our colleagues' work any immune response to these little little nanoparticles. I just want to try to clarify that because you know they try to explain with the mRNA. So essentially, it sounds like a little soapy material you yeah, insert it, it the crispus into. Yeah. That's that's what it's so they think it's of it like a it's a little kind of film, which you know people try to visualize it. This way, it kind of gets absorbed into the cells exactly. instead of being instead of being repelled. It kind of tries to make a little smooth connection. Yeah, mm-hmm. right, exactly, and so. Uh, and, and and so we decided that because we were worried, frankly, about any of the immune. Look, it's hard enough to go after a, a brand new innovative therapy. And the last thing you want is the body to reject it before it has a chance to work. Right. So our ration and, and I have to be honest and transparent. We did start with the vi- with the viral carrier. And it was, it, you know, and it was very efficacious. We get great, great response, editing response, but it was too expensive and it caused all kinds of problems, even in animal studies oh, that wow. we just backed off and, oh, and we switched over to this basically because the COVID vaccine was using this as a carrier uh, and, and generally it was applicable. Mm-hmm. So, but we've actually gone even a further step. Our target are, are solid tumors and initially of stage two, stage three lung cancer patients. And, my laboratory and our work was really baked into the um, uh, an NCI-designated Center of Excellence for Community Health, and, and that kind of gets to your, your other question. And so for five years, we kept talking about how do we actually deliver this stuff? Because, you know, if you inject it in systemically by IV, these nanoparticles go all the way to the liver, and they just sit there. It's just, it, they're a foreign substance, so... Right, the liver's like saying, hey, what's going on here? You right. know, don't, don't let it out. You know, you go have a beer at, you know, at, you know, hopefully you won't need 50 of those after talking to me, Dean, but, <laughs> but you, you go afterwards and that's where it goes. So any foreign toxic, you know, discerning particle that enters the body. So you really can't target lung or esophagus that way. So we decided to even go even more specific and that's to do intratumoral injection using a bronchioscope into tumors. So we have a non-viral particle. We have a intratumoral injection, which is done um, through a bronchoscope. Oh, wow. And the distribution is we can inject the tumor many times and it distributes. And then the, the CRISPR comes out of that LNP and does its job to, uh, to disable genes and to edit genes. Does it have to be a localized tumor? God forbid, you know, because unfortunately lung can be metastatic in a lot of That's cases. That's right. So the first le- level has to be initially the primary tumor. So we can, and that's why we chose sort of patients that are a little later along that probably have rejected all other kinds of, of therapies. And there's a large percentage of those. And our goal again is to give these people a chance to see a wedding or to reach a birthday right. or, or to do something because, you know, uh, drugs like Keytruda and Optivo are six months maximum in, in a lung cancer setting. Hmm. And so we, our strategy was basically to develop a genetic medicine, a, a gene medicine that could allow standard of care therapy like chemotherapy to work better. And the chemotherapy would then, if the primary tumor is reduced, hopefully the metastatic tumors would come along with it because the patient could tolerate more chemotherapy 
Um, in many of the lung cancers, chemotherapy is the first line of defense, uh, I think 25% or so. And so patients just kind of get tired of chemotherapy, either they can't take it or it's ineffective. So we've identified a gene that's enabling that to happen. And so if we use CRISPR to knock it out, now suddenly the chemotherapy at the levels at which maybe even reduced levels at which they exist will will be able to tolerate it. And now the metastatic tumors will also be affected uh, in the same way. So um, it, it really is a very small, very potion thing, but that's why we think it won't cause the same kinds of problems, kind of going back to your question, that the previous iteration of gene therapy uh, did. So a lot of times we know that um, you know, cancers are caused by oncogenes and right. there's genetic mutations. Are you targeting those genetic mutations within the tumor or are you just trying to essentially uh, augment the effect of the chemotherapy? That's a great question, Dean. Well stated. Uh, no, uh, we're not trying to chase our tail for oncogenic. You're exactly right. Oncogenes tend to mutate at a, at a rapid rate. And so if you were trying to use CRISPR to do a genetic spell check and fix those genes, you will never catch up. No. Okay. So what we what we what we decided to do was to take a, a bit of a bold approach, a different one, and that we decided to disable by using a so we're actually creating a misspelling in a gene that enables chemotherapy, mm. uh, enables the cell to become resistant. So it's a gene called NRF2, and mm -hmm. it's a master regulator of the uh, of the tumor. So as you get treated with chemotherapy, a unique mutation occurs in that gene. And that gene then senses stress. Chemotherapy is a stress. It blocks the chemo from working. So we use CRISPR in a unique way that only CRISPR can work. And so there's no targeted drug that can do this. Right. We disable that gene and the chemotherapy should then become more uh, more effective. So it's a unique mm, strategy. It is. It's really interesting. I saw your papers. Yeah, they look really, really and that, interesting. That's the idea. Yeah. You know, one of the things I thought about too, you know, the thing that we've heard for many years now, I mean, people are so worried about antibiotic resistance, you know, because unfortunately we fed antibiotics to the animals who, <laughs> again, built up the resistance and, of course, the widespread use of it. I thought CRISPR would be also a perfect area to eventually maybe, who knows, even replace antibiotics. Is that. Yeah. Is that even on the horizon? It is. It, it, you know, every, I would say this, that everything is on the table with CRISPR. There are some very clever people starting to work to target unique sequences in bacterial cells and even viruses. Again, as you mentioned earlier, it's what it does naturally. And that's the beauty of CRISPR. There are, it, it, it can be designed to be extraordinarily specific for about a 20 base or 20 letter part of a word that doesn't exist anywhere else in the genome. So if you can find those sites, you can target a designer drug that will only affect that. And amazingly, as we sort of started down our own line of research, we found a mutation in the NRF2 gene that occurs only in lung cancer cells, but not in healthy bronchial cells. So we could throw CRISPR in there, this being a little crude here, and it will only cause misspelling in the NRF2 gene, the one that's producing resistance in tumors. Mm. In so. the tumor cell and not in the normal cell. That is exactly the type of strategy, as you mentioned, that could be used against viruses and other. Okay. Yeah, that's that's really, I think, super exciting. All right, let's talk about probably one of the most controversial things. I really want to get your input uh, input on this. 
that people, if they've heard of CRISPR, <laughs> heard about it because it was front page of New York Times, and I, I, you may know what I'm talking about, you know, about, the, again, the scientists playing God, but again, what happened in China. Right. There was a, a, a researcher who apparently worked or visited uh, Jennifer Dudna's lab yep. and learned how to do the CRISPR technique. And so again, for our listeners, what he ended up doing very boldly, and he decided that uh, he was going to try to um, help make babies that were resistant to HIV. And just a little bit of a background, uh, apparently from what I heard in this case was the, the father of the children was HIV positive, the mother was not. Um, and I guess, you know, there's like a, obviously a huge stigma in China with, with HIV and AIDS. And I, I don't know if they were worried that the children might somehow get it from the father. I don't know. But so uh, this uh, researcher went ahead and actually was successful, I think, in altering a certain, I think it was the CCR5 gene or something. Is exactly that correct? right. Am I right? Okay. Yes. And, uh, and essentially made the children resistant to HIV. Because just so for listeners to know, you, we all have these receptors on our cells but the HIV virus can't enter the cell unless, you know, you have that CCR5. That's why it was really fascinating. There was, um, you know, I, I saw in the New England Journal years ago, there were like a few people that they were following that were, had HIV positive for like decades, had no illness. And then they right. found out because they were sort of, they hit the lottery on uh, not having that CCR5, <laughs> you know, receptor. So anyway, um, so what's your take on that? Do you, you know, because I mean, again, at first, you know, the, the world was astonished. Then they were horrified. And this guy got sent to probably some uh, Chinese boot camp for life. <laughs> I don't think anybody's ever heard from him since. What's, you know, what do you tell? And again, if politicians and people come to you and say, Dr. Komet, you know, what, you know, look what they're doing. How should this be regulated? Or do we need regulations before, you know, and that will that hinder progress? Uh, Dean, I want to just tell you, your explanation of the CCR5 evolution was as good as I've ever heard it, frankly. Oh, it, it was great. <laughs> uh, the patient that they followed was known as the Berlin patient, and you're exactly right. Mm. He, was, he contracted, he contracted uh, the uh, virus, HIV infection, but didn't get AIDS, and people were shocked. And so some smart person actually over there figured out, let's sequence and see why, because they knew it was T-cells. So brilliantly described. Uh, yes, this case definitely flipped the gene editing world upside down because, of course, all of us, uh, Jen Doudna and, you know, Matt Porteous and Ben John and, and all of the, the leaders of the field were out there saying, oh, you know, this is, you know, we can't use this tool. This will never be used. And then, of course, <laughs> this guy reengineers this. So the, what he did, the, there, there were really a couple levels of concern. The, the first one was he did germline editing. So he went to an in vitro fertilization clinic and used CRISPR to, which he did learn from the Doudna lab at Berkeley and, uh, and altered that specific CCR5 mutation. That, that gene uh, has act, was actually targeted by a company in the West Coast called Sangamo uh, to do this exact thing using a primitive form of CRISPR called Talons. We have such great names here, Dean, that you just gotta be in the field. Zinc finger nucleases. Yeah, talons. I know, yeah, it's, it takes me back to my biochemistry days. Right, <laughs> it's, it's all wonderful. And, and so the idea he had was that he could demonstrate something and, and correct, the father had exposure to HIV, the mother did not. 
And the parents supposedly donated these uh, to research, but didn't quite know what they were what they were donating for. It's not clear they would have agreed to it. But more mm. and and so he did something known as germline editing, which is forbidden in the United States. Now you can't stop private institutes. We are ethically opposed to editing fertilized eggs or sperm or um, you know zygotes or anything. We will never do it here. Um, I personally opposed to that for a lot of reasons. But somehow he did it. And amazingly, uh, the children were born and to everyone's shock, they actually resistant to HIV and are extraordinarily healthy. So unfortunately, we have learned something from the experiment. But the bottom line here that I, I think is ethically wrong is he did something that wasn't needed. Uh, he, he did most innovative therapies have to address like we are on, you know, untreated cancer patients who have no option. They're dying of chemo. They're getting really sick of chemotherapy. He did something where there was no unmet medical need. And so he, eth he, he broke a number of different ethical rules uh, from germline editing. And I'm not sure well, what the reason was that he went into, you know, went into prison. Mm -hmm. Was it just the publicity they didn't want? I think that, really I think that, yeah, I think that was it. But let me ask you something, because as you mentioned, I'm, and I'm really curious, you know, if you don't mind sharing, like why you're ethically opposed. I'm, I'm just thinking that, you know, again, sometimes like you have, you know, um, a couple and one of the people has maybe some type of order, you know, or what's the right word, um, has a, um, a dominant gene mutation. Yeah. mutation. Yeah. And, and then even obviously, you know, cause we do do genetic screening on, on couples now anyway, obviously, you know, Tay-Sachs and all those other types of things too. So what if you were to, you know, okay, let's just say I'm gonna throw out a theoretical here. Let's say there was a couple that found out they both carry the gene for Tay-Sachs and there was a, whatever, a 50% chance or something that the babies could have Tay-Sachs, which is God awful, you know, yeah. what, what is the argument against doing something? There, there are two. Number one, yeah. CRISPR is not absolutely specific. So okay. it could do something else. Um, now for it again, um, just to keep going on lung. For lung cancer patient who's got six months to live, this is not a concern. They, they want to be able right. to do something positive. So that's why right. we chose it. We specifically in our early studies. Right, right. But the other thing is actually a little more concerning to me, and that, that doesn't just go from the germline targeting or in utero, but it also is about treating children. If something goes wrong, and let's say that you, you, you are successful in, in correcting the Tay-Sachs mutation, which is a horrible disease, and, and this should be applied to it. The problem is that child has 50 years of life to something to penetrate through genetically. So while we, while we look, you know, we have to follow these, these, uh, these, you know, these patients out for years, lung cancer patients are two years at the most and probably not going to be a problem, but a child can have 40 years and something could appear. So you could do multiple levels of harm to them without knowing it. And that only penetrates out in the person because they live longer. So gene editing on children in pediatric cases, whether it's in utero or uh, in, in an early, in a young child can be challenging. That being said, I, I think there is an argument to make that this risk damage assessment should be made by the parents. And if this is made available, you know, like you said, it, it, there's a friend of mine at MIT used to say that the best gene editing is genetic counseling. <laughs> so that, you know, you, you if, if you want to have a child, you have to accept the possibility 
that let's say two carriers of sickle cell disease, you have a 50% chance that that child will be a full-blown uh, you know, sickle patient. So uh, understand the concern. I, I think it's frustrating to have a technique that could reverse a, an embedded genetic disease, which is awful. But what? since we're not at a level where it's exactly precise, that child, you, you could be doing something to the child that will, that will appear years after uh, it, you've, done the, you've done the technique. Well, let's, let's take sickle cell, which also I, I've taken care of patients when I was in my training. It's, it's god-awful disease also. These yeah. people come in horrible pain, very difficult existence. I believe there is genetic uh, recombination therapy for that, which I yes, believe has been right successful, there. which is really exciting. Yep. But this could be like an amazing opportunity for CRISPR. So you're saying a child would have to be born with this first, or you would prefer that before you would try CRISPR treatment with them, or in, it wouldn't be better in utero or something yeah, like that? I mean, if you if you could, I and mean, you can do this technically in utero. This has been a lot done a fair number of times in in large animals, and you know CRISPR has been used in that regard. What I'm what I'm saying is that, you, that the consequences of an off-target event is going to be much more serious in a child that's got seventy years of life as opposed to a patient that has six to ten months to to survive. So. No, I, I get that. I mean, but right. but on the opposite side, you know, it's just like, no, I, you can imagine the amazing life you could give that a person, I, I you know, instead of being agree. in and out of hospitals. So look, I understand, you know, when you do these therapies, especially in the beginning, you kind of go on the last hope situations because that way nobody's going to criticize or say, and then hopefully you get enough confidence that right. it can be expanded because, you know, this is really important. But I, I guess it goes back to what you responded to the article by, by Fyodor Ustinov. You know, so it's saying he said we can cure these diseases now. Why aren't we? So, what would be what's your answer again? You know, for the listeners, you know, why why aren't we? Well, I I think that what the the, the kinds of things I just mentioned are the yeah. major concern at the FDA, and I, really? I think okay. so. I, I I actually you know take his his statements in a bit of a broader sense, and that we can cure diseases by disabling genes like we're doing, and many others. You mentioned the sickle cell patient, so. The, the way that you can also treat a sickle cell patient without fixing that misspelled word is, is to actually disable part of the chromosome that's suppressing fetal globin expression. Mm -hmm. And that's what they're actually doing. That should be moved forward really quickly because okay. there you're, you're actually doing something that CRISPR naturally does. We are using CRISPR in our own work and, and the folks who've done that, CRISPR di disables DNA. It doesn't repair it. So if you can now disable something that's blocking the expression. Oh, of I see. Okay. That to me is a lot. Okay. More. Wait, wait, let's clarify that. And we'll try to use the visual again. So I think what you're saying is CRISPR, if the, if the word is misspelled, will block that word from being continually misspelled, right. but it's not going to correct the word. Right. That would. I, I didn't understand that. I say I, I always pictured it as oh, CRISPR comes in and the world, the word, you know, word is spelled, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, backwards or something. It doesn't fix it. It just stops that thing from being promulgated right. forward. Right. Now you can add a supplemental technology, which is a synthetic piece of DNA, yeah, to repair the, the misspelling. Mm -hmm. But remember, CRISPR is just an extraordinarily precise. It's like mm -hmm. if you have a long ribbon and you say at, you know, six miles of the hundred mile ribbon, you want to cut it. You can throw CRISPR scissors and it'll find that site and cleave it. Mm -hmm. So by inactivating 
suppressor activities in chromosomes. You can now re-engage things that have been helping you when you were younger. That I completely believe is ready for prime time. And I believe the oncology approaches that are helping patients who have no other option already. It's the fixing of a specific mutation that could be challenging. Mm. But your point is very well taken. Um, I hope, and I think part of our, our interchange there in the New York Times was really about let's push these things forward because during the time in which we're pushing them forward and getting regulatory approval, more precise CRISPRs will be developed. The work in this area of increasing precision in CRISPR is 50 to 70% of what's going on. And good things are happening all the mm. time. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you knew no better than I did because you, you treat patients and you prescribe medications. It takes a long time for the FDA to get its head wrapped around. And I, I think part of this was let's, let's speed the process up. And hopefully when we get to that point, there will be an increased precision CRISPR that will be able to do the genetic spell checking and correct the word, not just cut it. Yeah. I think, well, yeah, what's so important, and unfortunately it doesn't happen a lot of times, you need bold and really experienced people setting the ground rules. You know, and I always say this, it's like, it's like referees in a game. You know, if you ever went into a ball game and there were no referees, there would be chaos. You know, you would not, you would not enjoy, you know what I mean? You would not enjoy, you know, really watching the game. You know, we all boo the refs, but you know, bottom line is they're trying to make it. And it's the same way I feel about government. You know, it's like their job is not to run the game. It's just to make sure nobody's like cheating and, and yeah. that the, the game is fair. It's fair. So maybe, right. maybe you could explain this too, because I had never heard of Christiana Care before too. Can you give me a little bit of a overview how it differs from let's say a university hospital like university of pennsylvania or you know obviously harvard's hospitals you know because again doing this kind of work i would assume you need a lot of funding yeah and you need a hospital that you can work with so how does it work with christiana care i'm just curious so christiana care is a uh, about a thirteen thousand person healthcare system in northern delaware it's Mm -hmm. famous because it sometimes treats the president of the united states now so uh, that's good. I think he got his vaccines and his. Uh, oh, yeah. Is that right? Okay. Vaccines there. So, you know, that was bad news for me because I was driving and the traffic was stopped. <laughs> yeah. by. So there's always a downside to have. Right. You know, I think his, one of his houses is 10 miles from where I'm sitting. Interesting. Uh, and, and so Christiane has been around since the 1870s. And oh, its wow. main function for many, many years was to treat patients uh, and, and, and really sort of focus on love and excellence in patient care. And uh, about six, seven years ago, our new CEO, Janice Nevin, came in and, um, and she started to look at uh, how to improve the way healthcare is uh, delivered. And that's both in virtual healthcare and we have an enormous system of nurse navigators and home visits. But she also thought innovation was going to be really important. So I had been working at the University of Delaware, I'd been at Thomas Jefferson. And um, I had a friend at the Helen F. Graham Cancer Center. Uh, which is, uh, and, and I mentioned this before, it's an NCI-designated Center of Excellence for Community Care. And that showed the, the commitment to underserved or underprivileged populations. And Dr. Nevin and Nick Petrelli and the entire team here are incredibly dedicated to that. Mm. I saw that as an opportunity rather than a challenge. Right. Because I am feeling, I, I felt very strongly about making sure that breakthrough technologies reach underserved populations and, and wrote about that in Scientific American a couple of years ago. Oh, interesting. Now, where do you get that? Well, look, uh, we both know that the schools in New York, NYU, Columbia, 
they're brilliant. And the, the stuff right. that comes out of there, Fordham, right. Mount Sinai, it, you, you can't beat it, MIT, Berkeley. But we're out on kind of the front lines. And the, the idea is it's not just humanity-wise. There is talent out here. And so Dr. Nevin asked me to set up this Gene Editing Institute because she saw gene editing as an innovative way to treat patients. And they, I was able to get good NIH funding, National Science Foundation funding. And we established the Gene Editing Institute, and we just happened to get a, an idea that seems to be working. And that's, that's what we talked about with the lung cancer. But if I could just say one more thing about that. It, it, and I learned this actually when I came to Christiana Care that we needed to also set up an education and outreach section of Gene Editing Institute. So we, you know, we're very, we got about 20 people on the research side, but we have six people dedicated entirely to teaching gene editing in high schools and community colleges. Oh, wow. That's great. That's like that. that I think it was Katie Ganza was the one who I had on the podcast, which is, she's just a terrific teacher. And right. I thought it was great because, you know, like anything else too, the younger you get people exposed, then they're like, this is okay. I mean, I'm, I did a, I did this in my, my high school biology exactly. class. There's nothing bad about this. Right? That's exactly right. So we developed right. something known as Gene Editing 360. And we have a learning lab attached to our lab and in come high school students from Delaware and their remaining years. And we particularly go to those, those high schools that don't have a chance. Plenty of private schools in Delaware, believe me, the DuPont mm. family, you know, all of that is here. But there's also some very outstanding schools, public schools. And so we developed a program uh, that uses a tool called CRISPR in a box. This is a, uh, a, an actual gene editing experiment. The kids come in and they perform this, uh, this reaction. Hmm. And what that does is, number one, it, as you said, it demystifies gene editing. It, these are a bunch of little test tubes. This isn't a way back machine, you know, or right. something like that. But for us and for our own work in the um, innovative field of genetic, we want those kids to penetrate back into their communities and talk about, look, this is not crazy. I did it, just as you said. <laughs> and that engages trust. And so we're, we're trying to develop an innovative therapy, but we want those kids to be waiting for us at the finish line. But we also want them to join our army. So the more they get interested, you know, we, we have a couple of community college students that are now graduate students at University of Delaware that came to us and just loved them to keep going. And so it's, it, I found the education That's and right. outreach piece of this to be so important. And, and Christiana has, has pi, you know, piloted that concept of bringing that the patient first focus as opposed to technology. So that, that you know, is we, great. We folk, yeah, our approach is different. Um, I, I, I wish I had the resources of some of my more famous and uh, colleagues, but I like our approach because we focus on the patient, not the technology. Yeah, no, that sounds great. You know, CRISPR also too, just for the listeners too, it's going to be used in a lot of other areas as well, yeah. right? I mean, even agriculture, I assume. And I mean, where else do I you think, see it? Uh, no, I, you're right. And actually the, the impact is much faster in agriculture and in animal in uh, in even technologies where you know you're making better and stronger fibers and things like that. So, and as you mentioned, a very uh, very great point early on. You talked about it's being used almost as an antibiotic, um, mm -hmm. and yeah. if it's delivered in a non-viral way, as we talked about, it it could be the next wave of of antibiotics uh, that that work without causing sort of this this resistance. So, I think those those events are going to, in, in those areas, you're going to feel the CRISPR impact ahead of, ahead of healthcare. All right. So my final question is, 
What would be your, you know, um, pie in the sky hoped in the near future for the CRISPR treatments? What would what would really excite you if you found out in the next few years it was able to do? I think if we can deliver it equitably, I think if 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 we can find a way to uh, start in a very dedicated way to demonstrate safety and efficacy, and then bring along with us foundations and governmental agencies to provide a way for everyone to afford it. Uh, I think CRISPR can attack and uh, destroy diseases and various forms of cancer that we haven't been able to go after. Uh, there's always resistance to new ideas, but yeah. in the cancer field, there's there's tons of ways to go. And uh, as you know, immunosuppressive activities are there. So. I hope it's just moved ahead carefully and methodically, but also I'd add the word equitably there. And, and I think that's kind of at the core of what, what we're trying to do here. Yeah, no, it sounds like you're doing great work, Dr. Eric Kmeck. I thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Is there anywhere we can send our listeners if they want to find out more about what you're doing and what Christiana Care is doing? What's the best place for them to go? Uh, you can just come to our website. It's the geneeditinginstitute.com. And, uh, it's, you know, if you type that in Google, we'll come up there at Christiana Care and uh, love to hear from all your listeners and invite you, Dean, to come down and visit. Okay, uh, I'll, I may take you up on it. The president isn't coming home and then down 95, it's pretty good. But all right. well, I, 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 like to, I always wanted to meet uh, President Biden. He seems like a nice guy. Very good, yeah. <laughs> actually, he's actually been on our lab as senator. Oh, really? uh, yes. That's, that's how nice the, the size of the state is. We get to see our congressional delegates that's all the nice. time. That's so. nice, yeah. All right, terrific. Again, thank you so much for coming on. Take care.